0: Our text this morning is John chapter 3, verse 16, which reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Pray with me, friends. Heavenly Father, right now we bow before you. We thank you for the songs we've gotten to sing. We thank you for the truths That those songs convey. And we plead with you now to accomplish your work in your way for your glory. God, save souls and encourage believers. And that's our prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You can be seated. All right, quick poll. If I had told you to quote, our scripture passage for today how many of you think i could have done that with no problem a lot of you right i was always, <coughs> excuse me dear me <coughs> sorry about that i was always told as a child that john 3:16 is the most well known bible verse in the world that may be true some people actually think judge not lest ye be judged is now the most well known verse and that's a sad story because that is going to be interpreted out of context badly. But when I was a kid, John 3.16 was the verse you learned to memorize first in little kid Bible school, right? Uh, how many of you would say John 3.16 is the first Bible verse you ever learned? Yeah, absolutely, right? That, and you know what? It's a great verse to memorize. Even now, years later, this verse is full of sweetness It's full of hope. It's full of joy. It may be, if you go back a little bit in your mind, you can remember days when you would see John 3.16, just a reference, written out places. Like on a billboard, you ever see a John 3.16 on a sign somewhere? Or or maybe on somebody's t-shirt? Or if you're a sports fan... How many of you honestly can remember if you're a sports fan, remember seeing someone at a ballpark, either a baseball game behind the plate or, or at a football game like behind the goalpost, holding up a John 316. you ever see that before? <laughs> Used to happen all the time. Now, years ago, I heard a story about Bob Euchre. You guys know Bob eucher? The, the radio voice for the Milwaukee Brewers, he was a funny, funny dude. He was a mediocre baseball player, but a great announcer. And one day, he looked down in the stands, he saw somebody with one of those signs, and Euchre said, boy, that guy's really excited about Tommy John's lifetime ERA. (laughs) Now, Tommy John's lifetime ERA was 3.34. It is not 3.16, so that fan was telling us something else. Now, here's the question. What years ago were people trying to do when they held the reference John 3.16 up for people to see? Why did they do that? Back then... People were, they were trying to tell people some really good news. They wanted you to know that God has done something amazing, something incredible, something everybody needs to know. John 3.16, it's a verse of scripture that contains what we need to know about the good news, the gospel. By the way, The word gospel means good news, so it kind of works out that way, right? If you want to understand the Bible, I don't think you can do a lot better than understanding the real meaning behind this one verse of Scripture faithfully taught and applied. So this morning, I want to tell you some really good news. I will tell you the gospel Because I want you to hear this. I want it to have an impact on your life. Many of you people in this room, I mean, here we are. It's a resurrection Sunday morning. Many of you all know the gospel. I'm glad. This should encourage your soul. If you get tired of hearing the gospel, there's probably a problem somewhere. But maybe let what you hear today remind you of the gospel why it's so beautiful, make it make you love God more, maybe use it as a tool to help you to know this is how I can share the gospel with a friend from one Bible verse. But it's also possible that somebody's going to hear this message today who has not yet responded to the grace of God. And I want to urge you, if you're not sure where you stand before the Lord today, I want you to take what you hear today very, very seriously because God has a beautiful thing to tell you in the next few minutes. So I want you to hear it, and I want you to let it lead you to life with God. Today is Easter. Today is Resurrection Sunday. Today is the day when we celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ died on a cross and rose from the grave. Today is the day when we remember the new life that he gives to everyone who comes to him. So what better thing for you and me to study today than the simple, clear, beautiful message that, yes, we read in John 3.16. And as we pick up this verse, it's not all by itself. It's not hanging out there on a limb all on its own. It comes in a section where Jesus has been having a conversation with a religious teacher named Nicodemus. Nicodemus knew a lot about the law of God. He knew a lot about the rules in the Bible. But Nicodemus did not know anything about how a man or a woman can actually be made right with God. Jesus told Nicodemus something very special needs to happen before we can ever see the kingdom of God. We must be born again. We must have new spiritual life given us by God Nicodemus, of course, was very confused as to how anybody gets that spiritual life. And so Jesus points Nicodemus to a really weird Old Testament story. Without getting into the details of it, I can tell you that the way Jesus said that you and I can be made right with God, the way we can have life with God is to look to Jesus in faith. And now as we go forward, we're going to see in one verse what that's all about. This morning we will find five sermon points as we work our way through the good news that God wants us to hear today. And every one of these points is something you need to know if you want to understand the message God has for all of us. So let's get started, okay? Point number one, you ready? The gospel is God's story. The gospel is God's story. Look at the beginning of John 3.16. You tell me, what are the first two words in John 3.16? For God. Back in your school days, you all remember going to school? I bet in your school days, you had to take tests on reading and comprehension. Anybody remember those? Your teacher would make you read a story. And then he or she would ask you a series of questions about that story to make sure that you got the point. They might ask you about the setting of the story. They might ask you about the main problem that the story posed. They might ask you about the dramatic climax in the story. But I will tell you this without fail, in any reading comprehension test I ever took, they always asked who was the main character in the story that mean it meant if you read any story you ought to be able to identify the person or people the story is about just think with me for a minute let's do classic literature maybe classic films this ought to fit some of you and some of you're not going to know what i'm talking about in gone with the wind who's the main character Scarlet. scarlet absolutely Scarlet's there. Rhett was fine. He was important. There's soldiers. There's some interesting servants in there. That you, you, anyway, but it was Scarlet whose life we're following. Okay, good. In the three musketeers, who's the main character? D'Artagnan. Absolutely. I mean, it could be Athos, Porthos, and the other one. Thank you. <laughs> Aramis. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> You're right, but really, D'Artagnan's the guy. We're following the young guy that the older guys are training up more than anything. All right, all right, this is the bonus round. 1984, who's the main character? Ah, oh, you bunch of illiterates. No. Big Brother is on the side. Big Brother's not even a person. Winston Smith is the man whose life... And downfall we follow. And if you haven't read 1984 recently, you might want to read it and compare it to modern politics. You will find Orwell did not mean it as an instruction manual. He meant it as a warning. Um, All right. For you modern types, same thing holds true. Every story you watch has a main character, right? Right. Main set of characters. Every story you watch has secondary folks. They move the plot along, but they are not the center of the story. If you watch the very first Captain America movie, you're going to see senators. You're going to see army generals. You even meet Howard Stark. Iron Man's dad is in the first Captain America movie. But Captain America himself, Steve Rogers, that's the main character. You watch a Spider-Man movie, Aunt May Matters. But who's the number one guy in a Spider-Man movie? Peter Parker, Spider-Man, right? Now, why do our teachers make us name the main character or the main characters in some book we read? That is exactly right! (laughs) Did you all hear the wisdom right there, folks? Your teacher wants to know if you read the stinking book because if you didn't, (laughs) they're going to know it. If you can't tell me who the main character is of the book, you haven't read it in a long time, right? But your teacher also wanted to teach you how to read. You see, if you can read a story but not know who the central character of the story is, you're probably going to get the whole story wrong. That's true in literature, and let me tell you, it is true in your life. John 3.16 begins with the words, for God. And in those words, God sets for us whose story We're telling, when I tell you the good news about how much God loves you, and that's good news, when I tell you what God did for you, when I tell you about what you need to do to be right with God, do not miss who is the central character in this story, because I will tell you this, it is not you. It is God who is the main character of the story of history. History is his story. The greatest story ever told is not your story. You can be a part of the story. You can play a role in the story, but do not make the mistake of thinking that you are the main character. This story is God's story from its beginning to its ending. He is the star of the show. So who is the main central character? What's he like? If you took time to read through the whole Bible, you would get to know him a little bit better. God is the all-powerful one who spoke the universe into being. God is the one who created us for himself. He is the perfect one, the holy one. He is absolutely good, absolutely true, never, not even for a moment, sinful or false. He is glorious, and he is perfect in every way. And the question for you and me is, if God is the star of this story, what part will you and I play? Will we be friends of the main character? Will we become his allies? Or will we be his enemies? Here's the first bit of good news I can tell you today. You don't have to be God's enemy. God is willing to make you his friend. Let's see it start to take form. Second point. God has loved a rebellious world. God has loved a rebellious world. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. If God's the main character in this story, there's a lot of others around him, right? All people... Everyone from the first humans to the 7.75 billion people on earth today are all part of this one drama unfolding. And thankfully, we know God loved, according to this verse, who did God love? The world. Now, a little reading in the Bible would tell you that when you see humanity described as the world... There's a particular way of thinking that you need to put on. On the one hand, if God calls us the world, he is telling us that he has loved all kinds of people. For God to have loved the world means God loved Americans and Asians and Africans and Europeans and Australians. God has loved black folks and white folks. He's loved men and women. He's loved Jews and Gentiles. He's loved rich and poor. He's loved young and old. He has loved all kinds of people from every people group, every nation, every background, the world. So listen to me. Nobody hearing my voice this morning comes from a people group or a class of people that God cannot love. That's good news, folks. But the term the world also tells us, especially in John, something else. The Bible talks about the world as the group of people who have rebelled against God. That's who the world is. There are people of God and the world. There are followers of light and followers of darkness, the world. And God wants us to know that God has intentionally chosen to love people who in and of themselves are not good people. A preacher I heard years ago, and some of you have listened to him on the radio even now, is a guy named Chuck Swindoll. You guys know Swindoll? He's the best illustrator I've ever heard. He is so good at telling us stories. And I once heard him illustrate our goodness. I want to borrow his story. I want you to imagine that you're on an airplane flying from New York to Los Angeles. It's about 30 minutes after takeoff. And a voice comes over the plane's intercom. And it says, Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. You have the privilege of being aboard the world's first fully automated passenger flight. (laughs) This plane took off from New York's LaGuardia Airport completely electronically. We're now cruising at 32,000 feet completely without human aid in approximately five hours we will land in Los Angeles completely under computer control. There is no pilot on board. There is no co-pilot or flight engineer. Everything is being done completely electronically. Do not be concerned. With all the technology that has been used to make this flight possible, Nothing could possibly go wrong, go wrong, go wrong, go wrong, go wrong. And Swindoll then asked, isn't that just like you and me? We try to be good. We try to do right. But isn't it true that no matter how hard we try, something always goes wrong? Something messes up. We're always left saying, I'm sorry. I blew it. It was my fault. I messed up. I was wrong, wrong, wrong. The Bible tells us that all of us, every last one of us, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that simply means that we've all gone wrong. We've done Wrong. Whether it was on purpose or by accident, our lives are marked by being and doing wrong less than God's perfection. You ever hear anybody say, We're only human? What do they mean when they say we're only human? They're not saying we're only carbon based life forms after all. They're not saying we only have two arms and two legs. What are they saying when somebody says we're only human they're saying we're flawed we mess up we fail we're not perfect we do wrong to say we're only human is to say that we fall short of god's glory now to paint the picture you got to imagine the contrast folks God is perfect, absolutely, infinitely, forever perfect. He has no hint of a flaw. He's never failed. He's never thought an evil thought. He's never once even slipped up. He has never imagined a thing he shouldn't imagine. He's never made one single wrong move. On the other hand, you and I live full of mistakes, full of flaws. Sometimes, if you're honest with me, just talking to me, you know it's true. Sometimes we're full of intentional rebellion. You ever be bad on purpose? The Bible describes us like this in Romans three ten through 18. Just listen. You, you decide how dark the colors are in this picture. As it is written, None is righteous, no not one. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is a dark picture. Wouldn't you agree? How could God, a perfect God, love people like that? You know your own heart, at least maybe a little bit. And you know how dark your thoughts can be. You know how wrong that you've been at different times. Have you ever had one of those moments you thought about yourself, man, I'm kind of nasty sometimes. Honestly, you ever felt that way? Boy, I said that and that was mean. And by the way, what you say in your car at the other cars counts. (laughs) How could God love rebels and mess-ups like you and me? Anytime God's ever revealed why he loves sinful people like us, he tells us that doing so, get this, pleases him. (laughs) It, It fits God's nature. It makes God happy. It glorifies God to love people like us. When God says to Israel, why did he choose them as a nation? Why did he love them as a people? In Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, God says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and he is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God said to Israel, I love you. You, Israel as a nation, because I do. It's my choice. God says he loves us because he chose to do so. And I can't tell you why God has chosen to show love to people like us. I've got guesses. But I can tell you for sure the Bible says God has. God so loved the world. It's a world full of sinners who have fallen short of God's glory. But God has shown us love. Loving us gives God glory. But don't be confused about this because you and I do not benefit God. We don't add to God. We don't make him stronger. We don't make him better. God loves, listen to this, God loves because it's who God is. And what we've learned brings us to a third point. Point number three, we would perish without God's grace. We would perish without God's grace. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. How many of you think it's good to hear bad news? (laughs) usually people don't think positively about bad news, right? But if you think about it well, you'll realize that sometimes it is very good for you to hear bad news. Let me ask you, do you consider it good when you hear a loud, shrill fire alarm going off? What would you say? Not generally. No, fire alarms are not good news. They could be very bad news. A fire alarm might be telling you that the building you are in is, guess what? On fire. That is generally bad news, yes? But hearing that bad news just might save your life. Hearing that bad news might cause you to move in an orderly fashion to the nearest exit and to safety. Bad news is good when the bad news can warn us away from further danger. God loved us in such a way that we should not perish. The bad news is a thing you've got to know, including the fact that you and I are in danger of perishing. The word perish means to die or to be destroyed. In a biblical concept, this means more than simple physical death. To perish biblically is for you to die and to suffer the wrath of God in hell for your sin. It is a horrible, painful torment that lasts forever. And it is the perfectly proper punishment for sinning against a holy God. God loved the world in such a way and to such an extent that he chose to do something to keep us from perishing. That is good news. All of us, every last one of us, deserves to perish. But God chose to do something that would ensure that in fact the entire human race doesn't have to perish. Some people are going to be saved by God. So the bad news for you and me is this. We are part of the world, right? You were born into the world. We've all rebelled against God. We have all earned, we deserve God's wrath. We deserve to perish and we will perish unless something is changed in our circumstances. So let's get to point four and find out what that is. God's Son Jesus died in our place. God's Son Jesus died in our place. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Here comes the good news the really good news. God has done something so that we do not have to perish. But what he's done is something we would never have imagined. God the Father sent Jesus, God the Son, to earth as our substitute to die in our place. And this is the only way you and I could ever be made right with God. All of us have sinned. I think we established that pretty clearly. Now let's understand the consequences of sin. Because of our sin, there are two major problems that we face. First, your sin has caused you to owe a debt to God for offending His righteousness. You and I have sinned against God. We owe God a debt, a penalty must be paid for our sin. Secondly, our sin makes us dirty before God and we need to be made clean so that we can stand in God's presence. Debt to be paid, dirt to be cleansed, if you will. What could God do? Some people would say to you that they think God should just overlook our sin. They think God should just turn the other way it's fine, don't worry about it, I'll I'll ignore it. But if God did that, God would not at all be just. Can you imagine a judge in a courtroom sitting on the bench, looking down at someone who's guilty of murder or rape, and saying to the man, I know you're guilty, but I really don't want to punish you for your crime, I don't feel like it today, so just go ahead and go. Just go back out in society. Don't worry about it. What kind of judge would that be, y'all? Would you like that judge? Would you vote for that judge to keep his job? No. That would be an unjust judge. And that is certainly not our God. But if you and I have to pay the penalty for our crimes against God, we will spend forever in hell without ever getting out. Why? Because we've offended a God whose perfection is infinite. It's without end. The punishment must fit the crime for justice to be done. Our punishment has to be infinite without end. And so if we have to face our own punishment, we cannot survive it. So what was God's solution? God allowed... For a substitute, a stand-in, a scapegoat, God sent Jesus, the only man who ever lived a perfect life, and Jesus voluntarily went to the cross and allowed God the Father to transfer the guilt of others onto him. God the Father punished God the Son for the sins of other people. And since Jesus is both God and man, Jesus actually is able to pay the infinite price for all of the sins of all who will ever be forgiven. Not only that, Jesus did another thing. He didn't just let God the Father transfer to him our guilt. Jesus lived a perfect life and offers to us his perfect standing before God. So he will pay our debt and clean us up. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's it. One verse, guys. God made Jesus, who had never sinned, to be sin on our behalf. And he did this that he might punish our sin and then grant to us, in, in, instead of the punishment we deserve, give to us as a gift the perfect righteousness of God. Who's the main character in the story? God's the main character in the story. He loved all sorts of people who have rebelled against him. All of us would perish because of our guilt, but God sent Jesus to pay our penalty and clean us up. And there's only one question that remains. How in the world does this happen for people like you and me? How do you get this gift applied to you? Fifth point, last point. If you believe in Jesus you will experience God's love forever. If you believe in Jesus, you will experience God's love forever. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Think about it. What could we ever do to get God's grace? We have done so much wrong stuff before God, we cannot make up for it by doing good deeds. What good thing could you do that would make up for an infinite failing? You have infinite goodness in you? Don't think so. None of us can do enough good things to impress God. None of us could ever do enough good to pay for the wrong that we've done. That's why Jesus had to come to die for us. So how do you get Jesus to pay for your sin? The answer is this. Believe. Believe. That's it. Have faith in. Put your trust in Jesus. That's it. You cannot work your way to God. You cannot suffer enough to make yourself okay before God. You must Simply trust Jesus and ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin because of what he did on the cross. Does that sound weird? Does it seem too easy? You ever think that way? That sounds a little too easy, Travis. Can it be true that God would give people eternal life, a forever peace, a forever joy with God, if we will only believe, genuinely believe in Jesus? Yeah, that's it. Let's let's play a little logic game. What exactly could God demand that we do that would make sense? Would it make more sense if God said to you, okay, you want to be forgiven? climb Mount Everest, swim the Mississippi River, and bench press 400 pounds, and then you can go to heaven. Would that make more sense? Why, right? Or would it make more sense for God to tell you, okay, I want you to put on a red T-shirt, spin around in a circle, click your heels, and chant a Latin prayer in order to go to heaven. Would that do it? Does that make any more sense? No. When you come to think about it, if you think about it, every single thing you could come up with to say that a man should do to be saved sounds ridiculous. And you know what the most ridiculous thing of all would be? The most ridiculous thing of all would be to tell somebody, you just be good and you go to heaven. We're not good. That's the problem. We can't be good like God. So that's never going to work. The fact is, There is nothing, absolutely nothing that we can do to make ourselves worthy of heaven. So the only solution, friends, is faith. God tells us whoever believes in Jesus, trusts in Jesus, will not perish, but will have life forever with God. So here's the question. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Mentally, with your brain, it means That you understand that Jesus died for your sins and came back from the dead and will forgive you if you ask. Do you believe that with your brain? In your heart, believing in Jesus means that you trust him enough to place all of your, your hope for all of your soul's eternity in Jesus alone. Not you, not somebody else, just Jesus. Practically, It means that you believe in Jesus so much that it changes your life, your heart, and everything about you. Religiously, it means that you will never again think you can earn your way to God through anything, and you will worship God out of love for Jesus instead of out of an attempt to earn the favor of God. Now here's a question for you. Why would we ever think that Jesus could give one of us life, eternal life, even if we die? I'm going to give you two reasons why you should believe that, okay? First one, that's precisely what Jesus said he was going to do. In John 11, 25 and 26, when Lazarus had died, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So, Jesus called his shot. But even more convincing than the fact that Jesus said he can give us life is the fact that Jesus himself died and then came back alive listen to Luke 24 1 through 9 but on the first day of the week this is Sunday after Jesus died on the cross on a Friday on the first day of the week at early dawn they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood beside them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. But has risen, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. The Apostle Paul tells us how important this is in 1 Corinthians 15, I want to read 17 to 23, it says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as by a man came death by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead for as in Adam all died so in also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order Christ the first fruits then at his coming those who belong to Christ Listen to me the fact that Jesus walked out of the tomb alive, never to die again, this is how we know that everyone who believes in Jesus for salvation will live forever with Jesus. Let me say this to you. Don't let yourself even begin to think about this metaphorically. I'm not saying Jesus rose in people's hearts and minds. I'm telling you that the body that was crucified, that the heart that stopped beating in Lake Hole for three days began to beat again. The eyes opened, the lungs breathed, and the man Jesus, the God-man Jesus, with the scars in his hands, walked out of the grave and conquered death forever. You know, I believe God brought us all here this morning and he knew exactly who needed to be here. And I believe God wanted you, every one of you, to hear this good news. It is Resurrection Sunday, my friends, and God wants you to respond to the risen Lord Jesus today. And you will Respond to Jesus today, one way or another. Either you will believe in Jesus, or you won't. Either you will trust in Jesus, or you won't. Either you will live forever with Jesus, or you won't. God is good. God loves all kinds of people. He has loved rebels against him. He sent Jesus to die as a sacrifice for sins. And anyone who will trust in Jesus will be saved. And anyone who refuses to trust in Jesus will perish. You do not have to perish. God will save your soul if you will trust in Jesus. And so I invite you today, turn from sin and believe in Jesus for life. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you. You're good. You are holy. You're right. All that you are is perfect. And God, we need you To help everyone who hears this message. No one will come to you without your supernatural drawing. We need you to break through hearts and save souls. We trust you, God, to do the work only you can do. But I do pray, Lord, that those who hear will come. I pray that souls will be saved. I pray that men and women and children will find glory, joy, and life in the gospel. I pray that the sin that would break our souls, the sin that would condemn us to hell forever, I pray that that will be taken away because of the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. And I pray that we'll have life with Jesus forever. Forgive us our sins And let us honor you. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.